Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 today. We started in January in chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 3. We are cruising uh, right through Ephesians. Um, I want to make you uh, just aware of a couple things while you're turning there. One, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Ephesians starting next week. We're going to do what we say is like come up for air just for a little bit. Uh, And we're going to go into our summer looking at a couple different things. The first thing is we're going to take a look at uh, trying to understand a biblical theology of anger. Uh, just given what's going on in the world and in a lot of our own lives, just kind of understand what does the Bible teach about anger. And we're going to walk through a short series called The Heart of Anger, where we come to understand what does the Bible teach about this? What does that mean for us in our lives? Followed by that, uh, we're going to, in the middle of the summer, uh, finish that, and then we're going to go through a series on our values. Our elders have spent quite a bit of time praying and talking and sorting through the values that we have as a church family, and we're going to spend some time in the summer. Now, here's the thing about that series. Uh, In church leadership, if you will, I can't stand that phrase, but in church leadership, uh, the, the two months you avoid preaching about really, really important things like the values of your church would be June and July, so we thought, let's go for it. Um, and we thought, uh, just the timing, it worked out, that's the best time to do it, and uh, we know that with the sermons being recorded and the podcast and stuff, if you're not here and you're traveling, you can catch up very easily, and so we're going to encourage you to do that. Uh, one more thing before we get started this morning. Uh, we've had quite a week here at, this, at the church. Yesterday, we had a, a wedding uh, between two families in the church coming together, which was really neat. Um, uh, a couple that met here at New Hope, and, and it was just a fun time to have that wedding and celebrate. Um, and next Saturday, this coming Saturday, it's coming up, we've got Justin's Run for Hope. And if you haven't registered for that, you still can. There's going to be a ton of uh, our New Hope family here on our campus on Saturday participating and serving, all kinds of things. And you can still get signed up for that. And then tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to celebrate the life of a matriarch of our church family, Martha Bymaster. Uh, passed away uh, just a few days ago at 105 years old. Uh, pretty incredible. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain it to you this way if you're new to our church. Um, I get to be here because of her. Like the ministry that I get to do here, along with all the staff and elders here at New Hope, we stand on her shoulders. She and her husband, Clyde, answered the Lord's call 50 years ago as a part of a core group of people that started New Hope Christian Church. And so um, this is really a celebration of a woman of deep faith and big impact for the kingdom of God. And so we're going to celebrate that tomorrow and ask that you would continue to pray for her family. Um, 105 years old, you're like, she's 105. Grief is grief. And when you miss somebody, you miss them. And so would you pray just a prayer of God's blessing and peace over the family uh, tomorrow morning uh, while we have the funeral here. Let's pray together and we'll jump into Ephesians 3. Father, we thank you. For our time now in your word as we turn our attention to it and as it calls us to lean on you um, through difficulty and um, we celebrate with weddings but we look ahead to a memorial run and a funeral that can be really hard. So we just ask Father that you would um, pour out your blessings on those who are mourning, um, help us to mourn with those who mourn, help us to find our peace in Jesus. And we ask you for that in his name, amen. Uh, In his book, Strong and Weak, Andy Crouch defines the concept of vulnerability this way. He says, it is exposure to meaningful risk. Exposure to meaningful risk. 
Meaning, you're putting a lot on the line in order to get to this goal that you might have. You have to make yourself vulnerable because you're risking that even though you're pursuing one thing, it may not go the way that you hoped that it would. And so this vulnerability is, I might be disappointed, and I'm going to go for it because I think it's worth it, and even if it doesn't work out, I need to be willing to do this. If you've walked with Jesus for long, you know that this is a little bit about the call that we have to our prayer life. See, we're called in our prayer life to be vulnerable with God. We're called to take on this meaningful risk. And the risk is one that we would be known in a way that we're not known anywhere else. That we could be completely and open and honest with God and not wear a mask, if you will, or fake anything. And in doing so, we risk this idea that God's leading of us might take us to a place that we didn't see coming that we weren't necessarily aiming for, and yet we're making ourselves vulnerable before him. And you see this throughout the scriptures, that God takes us on journeys that we don't, we don't set the course for, and yet when we get there, we realize all that he was doing along the way, but it requires that we're open with him and that we're vulnerable and that we're willing to engage. One of my favorite encounters in scripture is found in the life of Jacob in the Old Testament. If you know your Bible, the story of Jacob starts out, we get this really neat part of his story because we get to learn about his story all the way in the womb. See, when his mother is pregnant with he and his brother Esau, there's a competition that takes place right away in the womb. Who's going to get born first? Who's going first? Because the firstborn would get the bulk of the blessing, the birthright, the blessing of the father to lead the family. And Jacob wants it all the way in the womb. And so they compete, but Jacob's not strong enough. And so he grabs onto his brother's heel at the very least. I'm coming out with you. And his brother gets the blessing of his father. It's an interesting thing we like to poke fun at that uh, Esau was hairy when he came out. That's an interesting thing to d- describe. That's not the way you want your life to start. But for him, it did. Like, hey, this baby was hairy, okay? And he's hairy and his brother's not. And his father, because he was the firstborn, kind of puts him at number one in his heart and favors him quite a bit. And Jacob feels that right away. And you begin to learn, like even right out of the womb, Jacob learns, I'm not my dad's favorite. I don't really feel known. His identity was not Jacob. For him, in his heart, it became, I'm not Esau. That's who I am. And he begins to learn, and many of you have these wounds from your own childhood as well. He begins to learn that if I can't get what I want based on who I am, maybe I can get what I want pretending to be who I'm not. And so he devises this plan. He's going to trick his brother out of his birthright, and he's going to steal the blessing of their father. And working with his mom, that's exactly what they do. His brother comes in from working outside. He's just exhausted. And Jacob takes advantage of that. He's cooked an incredible meal, and his brother wants it really bad. He says, all you got to do is give me the birthright. It won't even cost you any real money right now, just, just the birthright. Oh, I'm hungry. Who cares about a birthright? And he makes the devastating exchange. Comes back to haunt him a lot later. The dysfunction in this family continues to spiral as Jacob and his mom devise a plan to go and trick their, his dad, who is older in age, as he's sitting there in his vision. Isaac's vision is fading, and he goes to him, and he puts animal skin over his body to mimic the hairiness of his brother. And it works. And his father gives him the blessing, and he has once again deceived everybody. But there's a change that takes place in the heart of Esau. The book of Genesis Chapter 27 tells us that he held a grudge in his heart. It says that Esau held a grudge in his heart against his brother because he'd stolen the blessing of his father. And he says to himself, he says, 
The days of mourning my father are coming, meaning my dad's older. He's going to die. We're going to grieve him. And when I'm done grieving my dad, I'm going to kill my brother. It's pretty intense. You talk about dysfunction. Like, that's pretty bad. He was serious. And so Jacob and his mom figure out another plan to kind of wiggle and manipulate their way out of that. And so he runs. Instead of facing up to this, any kind of repentance, any kind of reconciliation or restoration, no, he's just going to run away from it. Why be vulnerable when I can run a lot faster than vulnerability calls me to move? And so he takes off, and he finds refuge with a family member. He finds himself falling in love with a young lady. He works seven years to gain her hand, but then the deceiver is deceived, and he marries the wrong girl. That's fun. He wakes up. And after waking up to not the bride he thought he was going to have, he's so full of lust and desire for this other that he worked seven more years. Fourteen plus years have passed since he's seen Esau. And then message comes that Esau's coming and he's nearby and Jacob is scared. So he resorts to that which became pretty comfortable to him, manipulation. Devises a plan, sends his family over across the body of water to their safety and he's going to figure out a way to bribe his brother into reconciliation. And so that's what he wants to do. He wants to bribe him. But the night before this encounter is to take place, he finds himself at a pivotal spearhead, turning point type moment in his life, and he wrestles with God physically. And he engages in this wrestling match. The Bible tells us that the wrestling match takes place all night long. They're just wrestling back and forth, wrestling back and forth. And Jacob's stubbornness in this wrestling match comes from this fact. He's finally having to face who he is. You can run no further. It's time to get vulnerable. You're not allowed to escape. No more manipulation, no more tricking. You will face who you are. And Jacob decides, well, I'm not going to stop until I get your blessing. And instead of a blessing, he gets a dislocated hip. (laughs) So why did God make Jacob wrestle for his blessing? The text doesn't tell us. The text does tell us, though, that this desire for the blessing was pretty fierce and I think came from a place of deep wound. He wanted to change and didn't know how. He wanted that breakthrough moment in his relationship with God and just knew he was going to have to fight for it. And so he continued to wrestle and he gets this limp. And you think, man, he wanted a blessing, but he got a limp. Why? Well, as one author put it, the very next day when Jacob and Esau see each other at a distance, they see each other far off. And the text tells us that Esau takes off running toward his brother, But it doesn't tell us that Jacob runs toward his brother. Why? Well, because he's got a limp. He can't run. And the author, this author points out that maybe, just maybe, it was Esau's seeing of the limp in Jacob that softened his heart enough to reconcile with his brother. Maybe, just maybe, what he thought was not an answer to his prayers in a limp became the answer he could never have expected. Maybe the limp is how God did immeasurably more than all he could have imagined. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think anybody in the room has ever physically wrestled with God. And if you think you have, just don't say that out loud right now, okay, please. (laughs) But I'm willing to guess that if you've journeyed much with Jesus in your life, you have wrestled with your relationship and relation to God. You ever felt that? You ever felt distant from God? You ever felt like, man, I, are you even hearing my prayers? Are you even here? Are you, or maybe you felt like what I felt. 
an immense amount of guilt kind of wash over you as you look around and see all these people who are so seemingly spiritually healthy. They're just thriving. They connect with God so easily, and I feel like I'm in a UFC match fighting my doubt. And it just makes me feel guilty. Like, man, what is it, God, that I have to do to feel closer to you? And it's in those wrestling matches where God feels distant. Like, is he hearing my prayers? Do I feel close to you? Do, what's going on in my heart? Like, are you ever going to answer me? That sometimes we walk out of those encounters with a limp. We have to wrestle. And it's that very limp that becomes a blessing as we look back and see, man, God, you were doing more than I could have ever seen that you were doing. And even if we have to keep that limp, you know, the Bible tells us of Jacob, never tells us that the limp went away. For all we know, he limped all the rest of his days. And it reminded him that God was doing more than he ever thought he could. See, we last week looked at the first part of this prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for this church. It's like he gets down on his knees and he's just saying, God, I I want you to be with this group of people. And the wording in this prayer is so fascinating. A lot of scholars call this prayer a doxology. It's like, God, it's like Paul is stopping to praise God for what he can and will do in the lives of people. And the words of this prayer are fascinating. Last week, we looked at the first part that says this in verse 17, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, to really know it, to experience it that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That phrase that's in this prayer here, that you might have the power to grasp. Well, outside of biblical literature, that phrase was used often. There's the times where that phrase, the power to grasp, was used to describe an army that wanted to take over a city. But before they could really move into this city and make it their own city, there was a fight that ensued, a battle that took place. Blood, sweat, tears were all offered in order to get to this city. Before they could have the comfort of being in the city, they had to walk through the difficulty of this battle and this fight that ensued. They needed to have the power to grasp it to get through this battle. But it's also used in other literature to describe literally a wrestling match. This idea that two people would get into a wrestling match and one needed to have the power to get onto the back, literally get onto the back and grasp a hold of the person they were wrestling if they wanted any hope of pinning them to the ground. So when Paul says in his prayer for these people, I pray that you would have the power to grasp, what he's saying is there are going to be times when it's really hard for you to see how much God loves you. It's going to be really difficult for you to feel the presence of the Lord around you, and you're going to need the power to grasp. And he says, I pray that the power through the Holy Spirit would give you the power to grasp just how much God loves you, just how much he adores you and wants to be with you. And we have to wrestle for it at times. There are times when we're going to come to God's word and it's not going to make sense. It's not going to say what we want it to say. And we're going to have to wrestle through this fighting in our mind and in our heart around doubt. There are times when we come to our prayer time and it is anything but easy. And we sit down and pray and it's just a distraction zone. And we get done with the time we've allotted to pray and we have done anything but spend time with God. We have to fight and wrestle, wrestle with this to get the power to grasp, God, are you really there? Like, are you really? And Paul is saying, I guarantee if you allow the Holy Spirit to give you the power to grasp this, you will have a breakthrough moment. But then he says, that breakthrough moment might not look the way you think it was going to look. 
Have you ever experienced that? Those of us that have walked, I've been a Christian for 21 years. I became a Christian as a senior in high school. And in the 21 years of following after Jesus, 21 years, numerous times, I have been wrestling and wondering, what are you doing, only to come to this breakthrough moment and realize, oh, that's what you were doing. I never could have connected those dots. I never could have seen the plan that you had. I had to wrestle through so that I would have the power to grasp, to see just how much you love me and how you were working in my life. He comes to the end of this prayer, and he kind of continues, brings it to a close. And I want to read these words to you, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the words of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I used to get really upset with people when they would quote verses of Scripture and I thought it was taken out of context. Like, and I'll be very honest with you, most of that was birthed from my own arrogance and my own pride. Like, how dare you misquote God's word? Like, I know so much better than you. Like, just this arrogance that just seeped off of me when I thought, right? And, and look, there's times when a verse looks really good. Like, this verse that we've just read, verse 20, looks really, really good on a coffee mug, on a calendar. But here's where I struggle with Ephesians 3.20. I've only, when I hear people quote it, I only hear them quote the first part of the verse. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And it's as if we're saying God's going to do what I want him to do. God's going to give me the answer to the prayer exactly the way I want. He's going to get me that job. He's going to give me that raise. He's going to get us that house. He's going to get us through that situation that we're in. Won't he do it? And you're like, yeah, he'll do it, but it probably won't look the way you think it's going to look. Here's the thing. Ephesians 3.20 deserves to be memorized and quoted. You should memorize and quote this verse. You should. Like, don't hear me wrong. You should be quoting it. You should be writing it. You should commit it to your memory and into your heart. But the second half of the verse deserves it too. Because it says it's according to his power that is at work within us. And it's for his glory that he will do the immeasurably more. Not for our own glory. So what he's saying is this, God doing immeasurably more in your life is not about giving you comfort and answering the three wishes of your heart. Instead, it's about his power being shown through your life regardless of the circumstances you find yourself walking through. Here's, here's my concern as, as a pastor in 2022. And I say that word on purpose. We view ministry here at New Hope pastorally. We have a deep concern for people. That's just the way that God, Martha Biomaster, when this church started, that's the way it was. We didn't come up with something new. We're just continuing on in the legacy of those who came before us. But pastorally, here's a concern that's been on my heart as I've looked at this all week. And I'm going to read it to you how I wrote it. Because I'm not trying to show you something. I just want to read it. Here's the concern. If we aren't prepared, brothers and sisters, if we are not prepared to understand that our life may not work out the way we want it to, and if we are taught to quote half verses like this in an effort to create a false hope that God answering our prayers is about our comfort, then we are headed for a disaster at best, and at worst, we will walk away from the God that we think is letting us down, when in reality, immeasurably more is about his glory and not ours. And as scary as that sounds, most of the time, this is where it gets scary. 
God is most glorified in your suffering, not in your comfort. That's not easy to say. It's not easy to hear. Look, Paul prayed this prayer from a prison cell in Rome. He's on his knees lifting up these brothers and sisters from a prison cell in Rome, a prisoner to the biggest empire in the world, awaiting a trial before the most evil leader in the entire world, on house arrest, guarded day and night, not being able to visit with the people that he loves, being restricted, being told what would work and what wouldn't work for him. And yet we find him on his knees, a posture Jewish man did not take, but he himself said, I am on my knees in complete and total reverence and surrender to God on your behalf, not my own. Notice there are no selfish words in this prayer. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, together with all the Lord's people, would have the power to grasp how much God loves you. His desire, the deepest desire of his heart, was that no matter what these believers were going through, in the midst of all of it, good, bad, and the nominal everyday stuff of life, in the middle of all of it, they would still see how God is working. Because if you can see how much he loves you, you will come to see the immeasurably more that he's doing. But if you're not connected to his love, the immeasurably more will be about what you want and not about his glory. And his prayer is for this spiritual maturity to take place in the heart of all of the believers. That's what he wanted more than anything else. But it's a lot easier said than done because there are times where we feel distant. There's times where we're wrestling through a season where I'm not sure what I'm seeing, what I'm believing. I'm not sure what to pray. And we've been there. When I was in seminary, uh, graduate school, the main professor that I studied under was a man named Bob Lowry, a spiritual hero of mine. He's uh, since gone to be with the Lord. And uh, when I was in class with him, he made the Bible come alive for me. It was just incredible. But the focus of his uh, writing, his scholarship, was on the book of Revelation. And so I took a lot of classes studying this with him. And I remember vividly one day in class where he would just share his heart about the prayers of the martyrs. Martyrs are those who had been killed for their faith because they would not give up their faith in Jesus. They'd been killed. And in chapter 6, verse 10 of Revelation, they have this prayer that they offer up to God about their plea. And the prayer reads like this. They called out in a loud voice. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, their prayer is, God, how long until you avenge us? Meaning, did we live and and did we die for nothing? Did we live and did we die for nothing? Does this not mean anything? Is this real? Like, when are you going to avenge this? A very vulnerable prayer to pray. Well, in chapter 5, there's this interesting encounter that the Apostle John, who's writing Revelation, records for us. Kind of gives us an answer to the question of chapter 6, in a way. There's all these heavenly creatures, and they're surrounding the Lamb around the throne, being Jesus. They're surrounding Jesus with great anticipation, these creatures. They surround Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has in his hands this scroll with a seal that nobody was able to break. And inside that scroll, it contained the will of God. It was the reading of God's will and the enactment, the action that would come with God's will. Who is worthy to break the seal and actually follow through on what God wants to happen in the world? And they're with great anticipation. They're surrounding Jesus. And the text tells us Jesus is the only one who's worthy to break that seal and to not only read the will of God, but then to put into action the will 
of God and with great anticipation. But then John notices something around these heavenly creatures, that they're carrying these bowls with incense in them. It's a weird image, but here's what it means in Revelation 5. We come to find out in Revelation 5 that what's the incense that's in these bowls that are being held around are the unanswered prayers of the people of God. All the tears, all of the agony, all of the frustration, all of the pain, all of the distance and loneliness that you've felt as you've prayed and wrestled and fought with God are these prayers. And what he's telling us is this, this incense, God's going to use these prayers for the enactment of his will in the world. And Jesus is going to do it. See, when these prayers were first prayed, they were prayed for the here and now. Like, God, I need peace right now. I need you to resolve this issue right now. And it felt like God wasn't answering. And what Revelation 5 tells us is, oh, he'll answer it. But he's going to answer it in a way that you don't even, it's not just about the here and now. It's about the entire future of the world. He's going to use these prayers that you don't feel have been answered. See, when these prayers were first prayed, they were about individuals. And what Revelation 5 says is, no, I'm going to bless nations with these prayers. When these prayers were first prayed, they were about a little bit of relief right now in, I need this job. I need to overcome this pain. We're walking through this difficult season. Would you just answer? And it feels like he hasn't answered it. And Revelation 5 is telling us, oh, he's going to answer it. But he's going to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. You can't even see see all that he's going to do. But maybe you've been where these believers have been, where you've sat back in your life and you've walked through a season. You feel like you're wrestling. You want God's blessing. You want the breakthrough Paul talks about in Revelation or in Ephesians 3 more than anything else. And yet you find yourself sitting back. Maybe you've been thinking to yourself, will you ever answer my prayers? Will you ever hear me? What we learn in Revelation 5 and Ephesians 3 is yes. Yes. And it may not look the way you think it's going to look, and it may not go the way that you've been hoping that it's going to go, but he will hear you. What I would want you to hear is this. Your prayers are never in vain when they are coming from a sincere, vulnerable heart to a loving God. So here's the challenge. How do I wrap this up. How do I give you the, hey, you got to go and live this out, right? Because it's important, and you wrestle with this all week. You're like, God, are you ever going to hear my prayers? I'm wrestling. I'm fighting through this. And I would give you the advice that the Bible would give you all throughout the pages of Scripture, from beginning to end. The Bible calls us to do this. Press on. Press on. Keep going. Oh, keep fighting. Keep wrestling. Why? Because the discipline of the battle precedes the joy of the victory every single time. There will be times in your life, friends, where your prayer life and your walk with God will feel like it has come so easy. I mean, you will wake up in the morning feeling his presence. Your prayer time will be incredible. You will read the Bible and learn things that you had never seen before. You will journal all of the intricacies of your heart, and it will feel like it's never felt before. And here's what I would say to you that is incredible. Don't let anyone make you feel bad for that. What a blessing to be in a season, a sweet season of growth, and in a room with this many people in it. Some of us are right there. But there will be other times when it will be anything but easy, and you will feel like you don't even know where God is. You don't know if he can hear you. You are crying out to him, asking for something to take place, and you are desperately in need of a breakthrough moment in your life. And Ephesians 3 would say, press on Keep going, keep fighting, and you might walk away with a limp, but that limp will be worth every single step you take after because he will do immeasurably more than you can ever imagine in your life. 
A few years ago, I was with a mentor of mine, somebody who makes, who just made a tremendous impact in my life, a prayer warrior, someone who's taught me so much about prayer in my own life. And I was traveling with him. His name's David. I was traveling with him, and we're in this hotel, and uh, I thought I could get up early uh, <laughs> until I roomed with him. I was nervous going into it because he's like a prayer warrior, and you're like, uh, I'm not. You are. This is going to be embarrassing. And so I woke up, and uh, sure enough, he's in the corner of the hotel room. He's already praying. I'm like, it's 5.30. I thought I was getting up early. I was like, yes, here I go. And, and so, like, I'm tiptoeing in. I go into the bathroom. No kidding. You don't want to hear this part. But I'm like, there's no fan in here. Uh, I'm going to the lobby. And so, like, I tiptoed back around him so I didn't interrupt his prayers. And he's just this prayer warrior. And I thought, I need to know more. And, like, Jesus' disciples, when they came to him and said, teach us to pray, I went to this spiritual hero of mine and just said, hey, we, how do you do that? Like, your prayer life. And he said, well, he was on a trip one time, similar to the one we were on. And he was with somebody who was a prayer warrior from another country. And he got to spend some time with him. And he just said it was incredible. This time I got to spend with him, but I was nervous. And so during the trip, they had this set-aside time. They were going to pray for about 30 minutes together. And so they're, they're, they separate. They pray for 30 minutes. And he just knew. He said, I knew that when we were done praying, he was going to come. And he was going to ask me about my prayer time. And I was embarrassed because I sat there for 30 minutes and couldn't focus at all. I was distracted and I didn't pray. And so I, I'm going to ask him before he asks me. And so they get back together, and he's like, how was your prayer time? And he said his response changed his prayer life forever. And then as a second generation, hearer of this advice, it changed mine. And I hope as a third generation, it does yours. Here's what this prayer warrior said. He said, I spent two good minutes in focused prayer and 28 minutes fighting for my audience. It's always worth it. And you might feel distant, and it might feel like he didn't hear you. The battle is always worth it, even if you get two good minutes of breakthrough in a 30-minute prayer time. He will do immeasurably more than all you can think or ask, but it may not look the way you want it to look, and it might come with a limp, and I promise you, he'll make every single step worth it. Let's pray. Father, I feel very strongly that it is so easy to feel your presence on a Sunday morning gathering and worshiping you and praying together and taking communion and hearing from your word. And then Monday morning sometimes it's just hard. We need you, God. We don't have the power in ourselves to grasp how much you love us. We need the Spirit to empower us, to give us the power to grasp, to keep battling so that we have those moments where we can see with clarity the immeasurably more you're doing immeasurably more you've done and we can anticipate and entrust ourselves to you with great vulnerability complete openness no more running no more hiding no more woundedness because we're entrusting ourselves to the one who loves and cares for us god we might walk with a limp but we know you'll make it worth it and so as hard as it is at times we trust you because you're good even when life isn't good to us you're good so, Father, we thank you this morning. We worship you, the only one worthy to open the seal, to enact the will of God, and to do immeasurably more in this battle we find ourselves in. And we pray for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.